0: Help with sleep and stress as a bonus. Head to myeq.com and use code PARENTING for 15% off Equilibria's microbiome defense and much more. That's myeq.com and use code PARENTING at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. I'm your village founder and your host, Erin Royer. This week I'm answering two questions, the first from a mom wondering how to handle her toddler who insists on being called by the name of any given character that she's pretending to be that day and can get upset if her wishes are not followed. The second question is from a mom whose infant was sleeping through the night and suddenly stopped. Now, also, I just finished my half Ironman distance race last weekend that I think I've mentioned on the podcast. If not, my bad. I did a half Ironman distance race last weekend, and I do get emails asking about my athletic pursuits. But... Since there may be a vast majority who are not really interested in hearing about my adventures, I'm going to cover the details about the race at the end of the episode. So for those who are curious, they can learn more. And those who aren't can just get the parenting information that they're looking for and not have to forward through my story first. So the first question from Ashley, who wrote and said, Hi, my daughter is almost three. For the past few weeks, she insists on being called by the name of whichever character she is pretending to be. This is constant. She cries when going to preschool because she will be called by her name. I have been playing along at home, but now I'm worried that it may be becoming obsessive. Today, when she woke up from her nap, the first thing she said was, I'm Daniel Tiger. How should her dad and I handle this? Thank you." Now, this is so amazing that she has such a great imagination. So first, I'm going to discuss imagination, its importance the development, and the benefits to a strong imagination, and then answer the question specifically about how to handle this situation. Imagination is the ability to form new ideas, images, and or concepts that are not actually present to what we call the five traditionally recognized methods of perception, otherwise known as the five senses. Imagination is used in problem solving, goal setting, and creative pursuits. We notice imagination starting to emerge around two years of age, along with expressive language, and it's indicative of cognitive growth. The beginning of imagination is dependent upon symbolic thinking, which is the ability to pretend that one object is another object entirely, like a banana for a telephone or a book as a hat. The way we witness children's imaginations at work is through play when they work together to build something. They play house or play store or office. They put on costumes and role play. They make up a game. Kids also learn to expand their imaginations through imaginative play with other kids since their ideas can and do build upon each other. Also, some kids have imaginary friends. Kids also use imagination to work through feelings of fear, anxiety, worry, or uncertainty and even trauma. When I was a therapist working with children, we spent a lot of time in therapy doing imaginary play. It seemed like we were just playing, but it is a way to help these kids work through all of these difficult feelings. And you may see your own kids do this sometimes with struggles with peers or things at school or things that are troubling them. They may do some imaginative play around these scenarios to work through their feelings. So imagination is a very healthy part of development that in no way interferes with a child's ability to understand the quote unquote real world. So it's important for parents to embrace and support their child's imagination and even engage in the play to add to the creative and imaginary pieces if they can or feel like it. You can ask questions about your child's imaginary friend or in Ashley's case, the character your daughter is today. You wanna add to the imaginary role play, adding to the scene but without taking over. If your child asks to set a place at the table for her friend or to take her friend along on an outing, go along with it. Go along with your child's imaginary play as far as they wanna take it or as far as is comfortable or possible for you in that moment. So for Ashley specifically, it's great that you support her at home with this and definitely continue to do so. As far as preschool, it's probably harder for them with so many kids to remember to call her by her chosen character name of that day, but if they will or can get on board even a little bit, that would be great. You can try talking to them and see if this is something they are willing or able to do. If not, you and they can just let her know that with so many kids, it's hard to remember to keep track of changing names every day. So these preschool years are important for the development of imagination and also social skills, among many other things. But these are two areas that can sometimes get overlooked in certain preschool programs. So that's why I'm going to focus on this for a moment. Because these two areas, imagination and social skills, are essential building blocks for success in other areas of life. This is why every child development expert out there recommends play-based preschools. Play is so essential for the development of imagination in all the ways that I've shared, but it's also essential for the development of social skills. Children use play to learn to cooperate, negotiate, take turns, share and problem solve. When they work together to build something, there is a lot of learning going on in there. Not just learning about balance and form, math and engineering concepts, but taking something in their head and making it real, seeing their imaginative creation come to life. But then there's the negotiation with friends on what they're building, who's going to build which part, what are they going to add next, how to meet their goals as closely as possible with limited resources, what if there aren't enough blocks to build it as big or grandiose as they would like, and that's usually the case, how do they work together to change their idea, how do they use their imaginations to adjust their vision and then the outcome of what they're building. As you can see, these types of experiences are vital to developing these skills. Math facts and other rote memorization and worksheets can all wait. This is what's really important. The imagination, the building social skills, connecting with friends, learning to negotiate and problem solve are the things that they need to be working on in preschool. If you want to learn more about what to look for in a preschool or about what the different types of preschools are like Montessori, Reggio, Waldorf, what sets these apart from each other, and what to look for not just in the play-based arena but also in administrative areas, safety, and more, you can see the class called Choosing a Preschool on the website at yourvillageonline.com under the education section. The next question comes from Heather, who wrote about an issue with a relapse in sleeping through the night. Heather says, hello, thank you so much for the podcast. I started listening to it with my then two-year-old that was giving us a hard time with power struggles. She is now three and your techniques have changed her behavior. But that's not the reason I'm writing. Our almost five-month-old has stopped sleeping through the night. Our oldest slept through the night at about six weeks and we never looked back. Since my youngest was about four months old, she started waking up in the night and now it has become multiple times. Last night, we tried to let her fuss and cry by herself, but after an hour, she was screaming her head off. How do we get her to sleep through the night again? Thank you for your help, Heather. When we return after a word from our sponsor. To me, there is nothing more important than my family's health and well-being. We all know the quality of the air in our home is important. In laboratory studies, users saw noticeably cleaner air in just 30 minutes. When it comes to babies and children, there's nothing worse than dealing with a cranky baby or child who can't sleep because of congestion. and four different timer options so you can customize it to your home and your needs. Check out Puro Air at GetPuroAir.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. Puro Air is the only air filter that uses a HEPA-14 filter. That's GetPuroAir.com. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Heart is an infant nutrition company whose mission is simple as well as lactoferrin, the number one protein found in colostrum, along with broken down, partially hydrolyzed proteins. Byheart is an easy to digest formula. In addition to its patented protein blend, our formula includes prebiotics and an 80-20 whey to casein ratio, like in early breast milk, which is tailor-made for a newborn's digestive system. BiHeart is the only US-made infant formula to use organic grass-fed whole milk, not skim. Curious about BiHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com podcast with the code parenting for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. Now that we're back from the break, I'm going to go ahead and answer Heather's question about her baby who has stopped sleeping through the night. So Heather, this could be two things a sleep association problem, or a physical discomfort. So the first thing that came to my mind to consider is if she's potentially having a teething issue. Now four to five months is a little on the early side. Usually the first teeth come in six to eight months, but this is not unheard of. So is she drooling a lot? Do you see redness in the gums? check for some of these signs. If it's teething, you can treat it as a teething issue, a physical discomfort, comforting her, giving her something to chew on like a teething ring and just get through it, wait for it to pass. If it's not teething or another physical discomfort, then it's most likely a sleep association issue. So my next question is how is she falling asleep at bedtime? Is she falling asleep with a bottle or while breastfeeding or any other means of help from you such as rocking? Or are you putting her down awake and letting her fall asleep on her own? What I'm getting to here is her sleep associations. What are they? And sleep associations are the things we associate with falling asleep. What we want is for our babies and kids to associate sleep with something that they don't rely on us for. Getting into their pajamas, their crib or their bed, some type of a noise machine, the lights out, that's darkness in the room. If she's falling asleep with a bottle or a breast or with rocking then she's associating sucking or rocking with falling asleep and so when she wakes up in the middle of the night she needs that sucking to fall back to sleep if it's rocking the same thing she's associating the rocking with falling asleep and so when she wakes up and she's no longer being rocked she gets confused and wakes up and then wants or needs that to fall back to sleep so If it's the feeding she's associating with falling asleep, you'll need to move the feeding earlier in the routine and actually first thing in the routine would be best. So a bottle of breast, change, sing some songs or read and then put her down to bed or something close to that. If it's the rocking, the same thing. You can do all of that. You can rock her a little bit and then put her down to bed. Once she gets good at falling asleep on her own, At bedtime, it should eliminate the middle of the night wake-ups or greatly reduce them. Then give it two weeks of her falling asleep easily and consistently on her own at bedtime. If she is currently falling asleep fine at bedtime, or if you give it two weeks and do get her falling asleep on her own and she's still waking up, then working on the middle of the nights specifically would be in order to get her sleeping through the night. As far as middle of the night, there are three options for working on this, just like there are at bedtimes. There's three, actually, there's four options at bedtimes as well. Now, I'm not going into the options at bedtime because I have no idea if that's really the issue since you asked about middle of the night. So if you need to know more about the methods for bedtime, there's a class on infant sleep on the website, yourvillageonline.com, under the health and development section. And there are four different options for bedtime helping baby learn to fall asleep on her own at bedtime, and none of them require leaving baby to cry. Some, depending on different babies, some will cry with some options and not with others, so you can try one or try another, um, or or figure out which feels best to you. But I'm gonna go through the options for the middle of the night, since that is the issue that you're specifically brought up. So for the first option, When you hear her wake up, if she's just fussing, it's fine, let her go. Sometimes babies aren't even quite awake and they're just fussing, but I know you said she's waking up and she's crying fully. But if you hear her fussing, let her go for a few minutes. If it turns into a cry, then you can go in, put a hand on her and just rub her back. You can stay in the room up to a minute and you can gently shush her or say one phrase like, it's okay and very quietly, it's okay or it's nighttime. You can stay up to one minute and then leave. You can return every five minutes until she falls back to sleep. Again, don't do any of this until she can put herself to sleep consistently at bedtime. Otherwise, it will just be too hard. She'll get more worked up and you will get more frustrated. And the reason is, is that sleep pressure is strongest at bedtime. The best and easiest time for her to learn to put herself to sleep is at bedtime. Once she has that skill, the middle of the nights will go much easier. But if five minutes is too long between the visits, while that's the goal is to get to five minutes, it doesn't have to be that long. You can go three minutes or four minutes, even two minutes. That's fine. Now, this is just one method. There are two more methods. The next method is the next method is the fading method. It takes six to seven weeks. Now, this method also has several steps. So, You may want to keep a sleep log for a week before starting so you can see how things are improving once you start. Because it's a slower process and may not feel like it's working. So if you have a log, you can look back and see the improvement, then that will help you feel like you know it's moving in the right direction but this is completely optional. The idea behind this method is to slowly exchange your baby's sleep associations over the next six to seven weeks. Now, the following steps are examples of how you could go about doing this week by week, but the basic idea is that you wanna be moving forward towards independence, but here is an idea of how this might work. In week one, you would comfort your baby until she's almost asleep, then put her down, comfort her with pats as needed and stay until your baby is asleep. In week two, you would comfort your baby until sleepy, but put baby down, place a hand on baby every few minutes, and then stay until asleep. In week three, you would comfort your baby, put her down, and stay until your baby's asleep, but don't touch her. In week four, you would comfort your baby, put her down, stay until the baby's sleepy, and then head out. In week five, you would do the same thing. You would come in, comfort your baby, but not pick her up, and then sit in a chair by the crib. In week six, do the same thing. Come in, comfort your baby, but then sit in a chair by the door. You can see how you're slowly pulling away yourself as the sleep association, the parent as the comforter. Now, for those interested in some other methods available for both middle of the night, as well as bedtime, getting baby to sleep, again, you can go to the website at yourvillageonline.com under the health and development section. So this is the end of my answer for Heather's question. So for those interested in learning more about my athletic adventure this past weekend, I'm going to share that now. For those who just wanted information on parenting, I won't be offended if you turn this off now. And actually, I won't even know. So first, a little bit about my history with triathlon. I used to race triathlons frequently from the ages of about 28 through 32. I started with really short races and going longer and longer. Then I moved to Los Angeles, I met my husband, I got married, I had three kids rather quickly. Now I did do the Malibu sprint triathlon a couple of times after the kids were born, but that was about it besides some running events. Now, for those not familiar with triathlon, there are basically four categories of distances. Sprint races, Olympic distance, half Ironman distance, and Ironman distance races. Olympic is a specific distance. It's a 1.5 kilometer swim. That's not quite a mile. A 40k bike ride, which is not quite 25 miles, and a 10k run, which most people probably know 6.2 miles. A sprint, is obviously less than that, but it isn't a specific distance. It's usually between 500 and 800 yard swim, a 10 to 18 mile bike ride, and up to a four mile run, but they can vary quite a bit. A half Ironman is always, and I apologize for switching from metric to Imperial, but that's the way these races are measured. So the half is always a 1.2 mile swim, or about two kilometers, a 56 mile bike ride, or about 90 kilometers, and a half marathon, or 13.1 miles, also 21 kilometers. The Ironman is double that. A 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and a marathon, 26.2 mile run. In my earlier years, I did a particular half Ironman race, but I did it twice, and I did one Ironman. Now for those who've been following me for a while, I had a double hip replacement at the end of March last year because of the damage to my hips. I was told not to run to preserve my hips. That's the old ones, not the new ones. So I changed to swimming, but it didn't help. They kept swelling up more and more often. So I decided it was time to get them replaced. I was done spending four days a week hobbling around. Now last fall, one of my swimming buddies was telling me that the Wildflower Triathlon was coming back. Now this is an iconic race in the triathlon world for several reasons. First, there's four different triathlons that take place over the weekend by a lake where the closest hotel is 45 minutes away, so a lot of people choose to camp there. So it's like a big weekend party for triathletes. It's also the collegiate championships, so lots of college teams come to participate, and yes, party. Also, because the course is so difficult, it is super hilly. The bike rides are very hilly, as are the runs. Now, I had done the Olympic distance wildflower back in 2000, so 18 years ago. Well, the race had to be canceled for several years in the last couple of years because of the drought in California. The water level in the lake wasn't high enough, so my friend told me the race was back and he pushed me to sign up last fall. And I knew I had to do it. But not only did I sign up because I was planning to do the Olympic distance, but I opted to do what they call the long course, which is a half Ironman distance race. I remember doing the Olympic distance race, which is always on Sunday, and seeing all the athletes who had done the long course, because it's on Saturday, they were relaxed and enjoying their Sunday morning watching the Olympic distance racers. So that's why I decided to do the long course. Maybe it's a silly reason, but... Plus, it was the one my friend was doing, and also it's more fun racing with your friends out on the course at the same time. So fast forward through the winter and into the spring. It has been a cold, windy spring here in Southern California, so I wasn't getting out on the bike much. I hate riding my bike in the wind. I hate it. I'd rather ride in the rain than ride in the wind. Hate it. So I was relying on spin classes. Usually I do two of them back to back from my bike training. My running wasn't going well at all. Every time I tried, it hurt my soft tissue, the tendons, the ligaments in my legs for days afterwards. I just wasn't ready, I wasn't healed, so I stopped trying to run at all and just let it heal. Because training when you aren't quite ready is really counterproductive. Three weeks before the race, my training buddies and I went up to ride the race course. It was almost 56 miles of pure torture. Hills everywhere. The first mile starts out on a steep uphill, then more hills and hills and hills. Then about halfway through, there's about eight miles of roads that are just in horrible shape. There's cracks all through them so you can't get going too fast and it just jostles the heck out of you and your bike. Then starting at mile 40 through about mile 45, it is up and up and an uphill climb for miles. Mile 43 is the worst with this steep, steep uphill climb. Then you get up to the top of that, you go around a corner and there's another mile uphill. Not as steep as the last mile, but at this point you're done with hills. Then big ups and big downs all the way back to the end. At mile 48, I wanted to get off my bike, throw it on the side of the road and just sit there and wait for my friends. I wanted to tell them to just finish the ride, get the car and come back and get me on their way out. But I kept going mile after mile through the rest of the hills to finish the 56 mile ride. I got back to the parking lot and I couldn't even get off my bike. I thought I was gonna fall over. My feet were killing me. I had to remove my front tire on my bike so I could get it down lower so I could actually step over the bar and get off. And then I just left it sitting there in the parking lot. I walked over to the car and I sat down. I was done. I told them I couldn't do the race. I said I couldn't imagine running one mile, let alone 13 after that ride. But they tried talking me into it, but I said, no, I'd have to change my entry to the Olympic race. I was not ready to do a half. I hadn't even been able to train for the running part at all, but they said that I could do it. I really doubted myself. And my friend David told me what to do for the run, to just get out and start running two to three miles a day every day. So I followed his advice and I ended up getting myself up to eight miles within the next two weeks and decided to go ahead and go for it. So race morning comes and my swim is terrible and I'm in the best swimming shape of my life, but I just can't sight worth a darn. I am not used to it. I have no practice with that anymore. When all you do is swim in the pool back and forth and you're used to that nice black line on the bottom, you don't do so well in open water. So I ended up swimming all over the place, way farther than I needed to. I was so happy to get out on the bike and I did a really nice job pacing myself throughout the entire ride, which took me over four hours because the lovely road conditions and all the hills. I then get back and I actually felt great starting out on the run. The thing about this race though is that it's 60% trails and just like the bike it is just hills after hills after hills. There's also not a lot of shade on parts of it and it was really hot last Saturday. So the heat and the hills and the trails. I was making good time up until about mile four and then I had to start walking a lot with the heat and the hills and the rocks and the uneven trails. The next four miles went so slowly that I wasn't sure I was going to make the time cutoff to be considered an official finisher, and I was starting to bum out. I'd come so far, I'd done everything my body would let me as far as training, and it was looking like I wasn't going to be enough. When the trail finally flattened out a bit again, I started running. Mile eight and nine were looking like if I kept running, I could possibly make the cutoff. By mile 10, I had made up a bunch of time and I knew I was going to make it. As I came up the last mile, I saw a guy walking, and a lot of people were walking at this point. A lot of people were walking through this, almost this entire run, actually. I didn't recognize him by his clothes or from behind and had a hat on, but I recognized the Iron Man tattoo on his calf. It was my training buddy, Robert. Robert, I said as I ran up to him. He started running alongside me as we commiserated about how difficult and horrible this course was and we ended up finishing up the race together which was probably the coolest part of that day. Now as it turned out Robert and I had the same bike time and I actually beat both the guys on the run and I hadn't even been able to train for the run so and these guys aren't slouches either they're in really good shape so needless to say they were very impressed by how well I handled the course. So that's my crazy wildflower long course story and if you made it this far I hope you enjoyed it. But if you have a parenting question you'd like answered, you can send an email to podcast at yourvillageonline.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.